Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 173 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment, I'll be digging into the work of James Toth, who's perhaps best known to most listeners out there for the music that he's created under the name Wooden Wand, with a vast discography that stretches beyond that moniker and back into the mid-90s, Toth emerged from the U.S. fringe music underground to become, pound for pound, one of the best songwriters these past two decades have seen, a claim that I don't make lightly. In recent years, Toth has moved on from Wooden Wand, but has continued making music with a cast of veteran underground musicians in the group 111 Heavy. This year was slated to be a busy year for the group, with plans for touring and recording in place, but those plans, of course, had to be canceled due to the global pandemic. With extra time on his hands because of this, Toth began working on a book that chronicles his all-consuming obsession with music, and from this, it was the stories from his childhood growing up in Staten Island, New York, that formed the basis for the first season of the podcast series that James launched this fall called The Toth Zone, where he details how, in his words, his music obsessions gave him a reason to live, but also wrecked his life. I recently had a chance to speak with James over the phone, and we discussed the circumstances that led him to starting the podcast, and we went into some further details about the stories that were featured in the first season. We also discussed some of the music and albums that he's made over the years. You'll hear those interview segments throughout the show, along with several tracks from James's various solo and collaborative projects. Before we get into that interview, I'm going to play one of my early favorites from Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice. This is the track Owl Fowl from their 2005 album called Buck Dharma. Thank you. 
Okay, well, I thought to start off, we should discuss the circumstances that led you to start producing the Toth Zone podcast. And you know, from my understanding, uh, the stories that you've been sharing in this first season are drawn from a book that you've been working on for, for quite a while. So kind of curious what the scope of your book includes and maybe what compelled you to take the leap into podcasting. Well, yeah, like you say, it started with a book, um, which I've been working on on and off, mostly off for a very long time. Um, and it became clear early this year that it wasn't really the best time to be sending query letters or promoting a book like this. I, mean, I like to think of myself as a read the room kind of guy, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> the fact that there was, uh, you know, the pandemic and people were out of work and people were getting sick. It felt a little crass and tacky to be writing publishers. And I was, I was in touch with several publishers and it seemed that there was some momentum, but then obviously it became very much a sort of, let's just see what happens scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm the kind of person that's only happy when I'm working on something. I remember I always think about this John Zorn interview one time that I read where he said his idea of hell is a week at the beach. <laughs> and I totally relate to that. <laughs> you know, like I really don't like holidays and, you know, being a self-employed person, I don't like days where there's no mail, you know, et cetera. So yep. with the tour canceled and the recording, we were supposed to record the third record with my band 111 Heavy. That was obviously canceled because we're transatlantic and it would have required, you know, flights across the water and stuff. So I had to focus my energy on something and uh, the podcast just seemed like the thing to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of what was included in the first season of the podcast, I mean, did you closely follow like the general sequence of, of the chapters of the book of what you had written at that point or did you kind of go through cherry pick what you thought were maybe the perhaps the most memorable sections. And I guess on top of that, you know, to whittle it down to a, a, a digestible podcast form, did it take quite a bit of editing from what you had written? Well, the original draft follows the same chronology more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I changed a lot of things, obviously. I didn't want it to be like me reading a glorified audiobook. Uh, even though there, I think there are parts, if I was to be critical of it, I think there are parts that do sound like a glorified audiobook. And mm-hmm. some words uh, read a lot better than they sound when you speak them aloud. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to edit it and make it a little more conversational, a little less, like, maybe pompous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the subsequent drafts of the book will include, I think, more recent events. But the book, as it, as it was finished in that draft, um, when I started the podcast, did end around the same place. And I had to move a few things around. You know, I had I had a um, I had a you had a prologue, for instance, and I had to somehow work that into because obviously you can't really have a prologue if you're, you know, uh, doing a podcast. So I had to work that into the the sequence and stuff. So I did a little bit of fine tuning editing, but not a ter- terrible terribly large amount of that. It was mostly as the book is as the book flows. Yeah, yeah. Well, does get, describe for me? I mean. Was that an enjoyable process for you? I mean, uh, uh, sitting down and recording a podcast. I mean, were you a podcast person leading into this, or did it take a little bit of convincing to to do this? Yeah, it took a lot of convincing. Um, <laughs> actually, it's funny, because in a word, like, did I enjoy it? The word would be no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, 
I have nothing against podcasts. I, I, I mean, there are podcasts I enjoy. My friend Ro Jimmy does a great one called Broke Down Podcast, and I've really enjoyed Cocaine and Rhinestones and stuff. But in general, I'm not really a podcast person. I, I have nothing against the format. Um, but with the exception of those few, you know, a few here and there, I'd almost always rather be listening to music than listening to, like, comedians horse around you know what i mean (laughs) it's just in general i mean uh, it's like painting with a broad brush but i just don't know where people find the time right so it was difficult because i didn't really have a lot on which to model the podcast Mm -hmm. right so i i had to figure all of that out and obviously i've been recording records for a long time so i understood you know microphones and compression and pop screens and all those sorts of things but i still it was definitely a learning curve and i had to kind of do it was definitely trial by fire but uh yeah i don't know if i enjoyed it I, i don't know if i you know, enjoyed sitting there and talking and editing. And it's not, it's not something that feels very creative because the book had already been written, so it didn't feel like a creative act. It felt more tedious. But people seem to respond positively to it, so I think I'll probably keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess along those lines, you know, as someone who has penned countless songs and who has written reviews and full-length articles, et cetera, you know, what has the process been like, you know, prior to the podcast is devoting time and energy to a book. Um, there was an interview just recently, I think in the last month or so, that was published on Lawyers, Guns, and Money blog. And he said that, quote, the process was more cathartic than enjoyable, which actually makes it very difficult from the experience, or excuse me, very different from the experience of making music, which you find enjoyable, but not necessarily cathartic. So I was just wondering, you know, right. You know, the part of enjoyment that you were suggesting uh, in terms of music, is that just because of the direct nature of it? You know, the the ability to get it out there, whereas a book, the the idea that you're constantly working and revising and it never necessarily feels done. Is that is that what you're hitting on with that? Well, it's interesting because like the like, I guess writing the book took two separate forms and two different working methods. So the first part of it was just like writing songs mm-hmm. because I never really had, I never really made time in the day to like, say, okay, I'm going to write today. It was just, you're, you know, like you say, like being in the moment and letting the inspiration guide me like, like a song would. So you get this germ of an idea and you scroll it down and then you kind of deal with it later, right? Like you just mm-hmm. put it away until you have more time. So there's piles and piles of paper scraps, which is exactly how I write songs. <laughs> but then I moved to Wisconsin and suddenly I found I had a lot of quiet time and a lot of downtime. And I thought, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I had turned 40. And I thought, if I'm ever going to corral all this stuff together, like now's the time. So the second part of the writing uh, was more like editing than writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, music music not being cathartic, It's it's I think it's because it's not really about self-expression for me. Like music's just, it's not it's not a way that I express myself uh, at least not consciously. Obviously, there's always a little bit of, of a person in everything they write and everything mm-hmm. they play. But for me, it's just fun. Music's fun, and that's why I do it. But writing the book um, and making the podcast, obviously, it can't help but be self-expression. I mean, it's I hate the word memoir, and I was trying so hard <laughs> to avoid making it. But basically, like, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, that's basically what it is. Right, so it right. really required, required that that self-expression that I avoid not consciously, but just I avoid in, in music. So that's why music's enjoyable, not cathartic. And the book was cathartic, but not enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, and you're hitting on a question I wanted to ask you, too, is that, you know, with songwriting, you can 
you can veil certain things and write from different perspectives. And this is clearly, you know, it's very personal stuff. I mean, was that hard to get into that? And did that feel, again, you were kind of alluding to that. Was that just a little bit uncomfortable writing just about yourself? Yeah, only in the sense that I didn't really want to foist that on strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have a problem talking about myself or anything like that. Like, it wasn't really like a, 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 a I didn't really have to work anything out. It was more just, who's going to want to hear this? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not famous, right? And I'm one of, like, how many tens of thousands of, like, guys who've toured and girls mm-hmm. who've toured. And it just didn't seem like there was going to be a lot of interest in that sort of thing. So I had to struggle with that part of it. And then the privacy of other people, obviously. And, mm-hmm. and should I change this name? Should I not change this name? And do I sort of like, do I concentrate these events? Do I compress events? Do I combine characters that are more minor? So those sorts of authorial mm-hmm. concerns, you know, but as far as like it feeling like too candid or whatever, I mean, I generally tend to be a pretty candid person. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really, you know, if people want to hear the stories, I've got them for days. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, there's sometimes there's nothing sadder than like, you know, an old man or an old woman with a lot of stories that no one wants to hear, right? I mean, the, that's the, the back saddest in, thing in the world. The back in my <laughs> back in my day kind of stories. Back in my day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. There's one that episode of The Simpsons with the lemon tree. It's a really tiny joke, but it always stuck with me. I always thought it was so funny. Like Millhouse is like, "Hey, everybody, an old man is talking," and they all like gather around to listen. <laughs> it's like that would never happen, <laughs> you know, in any generation. So yeah, I didn't want to be the the old man telling the stories. Back in my day. We used phone books and maps to tour. Right, right. Pay phones. Like, I didn't want to do that, but Mm -hmm. it's inevitable to some degree. Yeah. Well, for for me, one of the fun parts of the the first season was hearing just how your musical tastes and interests evolved so quickly. Part of it is just because I could, you know, it reminded me of my own interests at that time, you know, working from quite quickly from hair metal and being a fan of Motley mm-hmm. Crue and then thrash metal and hardcore. I remember thrash metal being like the first genre that I could identify, like that's something I really like. And then of course sure. I had to like yeah. rap music in a few short years. And and then you even bring up like buying tapes at the local mall and bands like Exodus yeah. and Creator and all that stuff, you know, is like such a, a strolled on memory, memory lane. So here I am sounding like the old man right now, sorry. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> One of the funny parts is the the scene of your mom reading like this graphic car scene, car crash lyrics to, of an Exodus song allowed this very kind of serious tone. And I guess w- one question I had for you, you know, you and you brought up like the satanic panic and there was the PMRC hoopla and all this stuff surrounding heavy metal and rap music in that area. But it sounded like your parents didn't really bat an eye at any of that content content that you were taking in in fact they were pretty encouraging of your interest in both literature and music is that pretty safe to say yeah that's definitely accurate they were they were very permissive um maybe too permissive but i mean uh, none of us are in jail so i think we did okay um you know i wasn't exactly advertising like like two live crew lyrics and stuff mm-hmm. but i do remember my dad like paying for you know, Ghetto Boys and Too Short and Carcass albums, like, you yeah. know, without batting an eye. I mean, he, he likes metal, though, so it was a little easier. You know, he loved Ozzy, so I was exposed to that, you know, from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, he showed me horror films way too I mean, I saw The Shining when I was like eight or nine. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty traumatic. But I think their their parenting philosophy, 
if they had one, they wouldn't use that word, but if they had one, it was just to let us make our own mistakes. And as long as we weren't like, you know, killing people or Mm -hmm. getting, you know, know, they were very permissive and I didn't really have to worry about any of that stuff, luckily. And, uh, yeah. Right. I do recall trying to be, I had a few things that I was like, I, I don't want my parents to know I have these things. One was Slayer's Rain and Blood, because I thought they might think I'm a yeah. Satan worshiper. And yes, whenever I listened to Two Live Crew, I'd always turn it way down because, boy, I wasn't sure what was going to happen if they heard that. <laughs> yeah, that was that. those were pretty extreme for sure. I mean, I didn't worry about the devil stuff. Um, I didn't know how they'd react to the sex stuff. They, you know, my, I, I, my family's sort of nominally Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, but, but it was really, I mean, it, it was more just like, I didn't want to have a talk afterward. It wasn't like, we're going to take this away and confiscate our, it was more just like, do we need to have a talk? Like, I don't, I didn't want that. <laughs> just like, let's just, let sleeping dogs lie. Yeah. Um, I think I talk about this in the podcast though. The one, one thing that kind of made me nervous was the band Shelter because mm. they were a Krishna conscious hardcore band. And that was the point where, like, it was weird because, like, Hare Krishna has definitely, like, infiltrated the hardcore scene for a while. And I feel like that, of all the things, it, that would have made them a little nervous. Cause, sure. You know, they, they, they were around in the 70s when you saw Hare Krishna's at the airports. And I don't know if they had any negative connotations about it, but I was, you know, didn't want to have to explain that I wasn't, you know, going to become a, you know, give, give, give away my worldly possessions and join right go move to the temple or whatever. You, know? <laughs> you weren't going to shave your head and go hang out at the airport or anything. Right. Yeah. Cause they might've thought that I would have done. That. I'm an impressionable person. You know? <laughs> right. Well, are there certain artists and bands from that period of your life uh, that have held a certain appeal to you over the years? Like you go back and revisit certain artists every now and then. I mean, I'm thinking for me, uh, Metallica, who is a band like early, sure. early Metallica is a band. I can still go back and enjoy quite a bit. Do you have any of those? Yeah, I would even say that like lots or even most of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, there's always things that, that don't hold up well for whatever reason, uh, but I still love a lot of the music I loved back then. Um, I mean, I'd say 80% of the music I listen to for enjoyment now is music I've never heard before because mm-hmm. I'm just on this quest to hear everything. And this is something my wife and I differ a lot about. Like my wife will get into a record and it's for, for weeks or even months. It's all she'll listen to so in that way, she has a, a more a less superficial relationship to records than I do because I'll be like, oh, cool, I've heard this. Now I, I processed mm-hmm. it, and now move on to the next thing. And that's just because there's only so many hours in the day. But I don't know. Back to the question. I'm sorry, I'm being tangential. <laughs> um, I think the toughest ones to listen to from like high school and stuff is the music that I have some sort of nostalgia attached to. So it's not really it's not really objectively good or bad. It's just it, it takes me. Like, I recognize it as good music, but I don't relate to the feelings I get from the music, whether that was intentional, you know, intentional feelings conveyed by the lyrics or the feelings I attach to it. Like, the Smiths and Morrissey are an obvious one for me. Like, as music, I don't know if I would dig it if I heard it today, but it meant a lot to me when I was a kid and, mm-hmm. you know, obsessed with lyrics and the sort of the sort of poetic aspirations and a lot of hardcore, too. Uh, I don't know if it holds up, but it's hard to have the perspective. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think there's very few things that I listen to. Like, I, I listened to the Violent Femmes' first album last week. My friend Daryl Norson and I were kind of bonding over how much we love that record. And it still <laughs> sounds amazing right, to me. Yeah. Like, I still love that record. Oh, yeah. So for the most part, I think it's just, yeah, there's things that don't hold up, but it's hard to have the perspective of whether it's that's subjective or objective. Like, is this objectively bad music, and I was just a dumb kid, or, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, for sure. Right. Well, I guess that's a lead into this first block of music. We'll jump ahead a few years. Uh, you know, you didn't address any of this in the podcast, but when you went off to college, you started recording under the name Golden Calves. And in the liner mm-hmm. notes that you penned for that reissue of the Money Band, Century Band reissue that Woods uh, put out, you mapped out that time period and on the release pretty well. But I was just wondering if you could maybe discuss, you know, how you were opened up to this whole new world of fringe music. And you, you referenced artists like The Gods and Jandek and The Shadow Ring and Tower Recordings and on and on and on. And I was just wondering if, you know, yeah. prior to going off to college, I mean, did you have an awareness of some of that stuff? Or was it when you went to, was it per, SUNY Purchase College that there was yeah. like where your mind was kind of just opened up to all this new stuff? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a tale as old as time like i didn't know any of that stuff going mm-hmm. into college but um because i was like a you know i was into punk rock and stuff i i thought i knew everything because i knew who polvo and mission of burma were you know <laughs> but it's it's a pretty common tale because i worked at a record store and there was a sister store and the two managers eric mccarthy and matt valentine who records as mv yeah. uh, of course and he's in wet tuna and stuff those guys just hipped me to everything um, you know, in the great tradition of the older record store guy who was like, oh, you might like free jazz, you might like Krautrock, you might like this old blues record, you might like The Dead. I mean, they were they were instructed, Eric McCarthy in particular was like, tricked me into liking The Dead, and it's one of my favorite bands, you know, <laughs> right, since right. then. So, uh, yeah, and, and it's just it was just that tutelage that's really important, and I hope that continues. You know, I don't know with the internet how that affects the you know, that sort of handing down of knowledge or if even that's even discouraged now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I can see the argument for that being discouraged, the sort of, you know, these, these hallowed tales from on high. Oh, I saw the butthole surfers and, oh, wow, really? You know, I mean, I don't yeah. know if kids really go for that anymore, but right. that was huge for me. It was opening, opening my, my brain to all this stuff. And it was, yeah, I never looked back. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say, I mean, that, those experiences and finding out about that, did that really kind of plant the seeds for you for wanting to become, I I guess, a touring and working musician? Well, I was probably already on that path. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, I wanted to be in like a thrash band when I was a kid, or maybe I wanted to be a rapper, but I always knew I wanted to make music. Mm -hmm. Um, But And because of punk, I knew that it was within my power and my ability to release an album. You know, I didn't have this, you know, these sort of um, illusions that I had to, sort of signed to a major label. I knew that if I had enough money, I could just put a record out, just like Gravity or Bloodlink or any of the hardcore labels. But mm-hmm. I never had the money to do that until um, my first semester at Purchase, and I traded in my meal plan for the money <laughs> to press the Golden Castle piece. So I didn't eat lunch for like my entire first semester. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I knew it was in my, my, my was, I knew it was possible. I knew it was a yeah. thing I could do. So as soon as I was able to make, you know, get a thousand dollars, which I'd never seen all in one place until then. Yeah. I thought, well, time to put out a record time to, you know, start doing this. That's a story that you probably uh, did not disclose to your parents for many years. I imagine <laughs> yeah. it didn't go over well. You know, like I said, my parents were not disciplinarians at all. Yeah. But because my dad had paid for my meal plan for the semester, 
And, you know, it kind of got around through, like, rumors. It's, there were a lot of, like, there were a lot of people with drug habits at purchase back then. So it was, like, junky lore. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, if you cash in your meal plan, you'll get a check for, like, $1,100 or whatever. So, yeah, um, yeah my dad wasn't psyched about that. But, uh, <laughs> I did thank him on the record. So there, there, <laughs> all's fair, right? That made up for it, yeah. for sure. Well, let's, let's play, yeah, something, sure. play something from Golden Calves and... I'm going to play the track called Mod Bacteria for Fred Neal. And you have a lot of tribute songs in, in a certain yeah. respect in this album. Can you get back in the headspace? What What was the circumstances? Were you just hip to a Fred Neal record at that time as you were recording this track? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was just kind of nodding to the, to the, the people who came before and uh, stuff I was excited about. It was like when you read an interview with Thurston or Kurt Cobain or anybody who was effusive about their influences, and you'd be like, oh, Vaseline's, oh, Royal Trucks. Oh, mm-hmm. You know, I kind of wanted to kind of carry that tradition forward of, if you like this, you should check out this. Right, you know? right. Well, let's check it out. This is Golden Calves doing Mod Bacteria. Get their own food. 
and puts it away till it needs it. Don't need no government surplus. Sleeps a good thing at night, but too much is too much. See better than God. You would always feel empty inside. It's like the feeling you have when you skip school, when you ride in a stolen car, stay out late. No, it's more like always wishing you had done the other thing.
episodes of the podcast was the one 
that focused on your connection and your collaborations with your sister, the Boo. You refer to her as the yeah. Boo when when you were kids, and and I was really quite taken by the recordings that you shared in the podcast that were kind of sprinkled throughout that. And I guess my initial thought was that those recordings could easily have come out on some like weird CDR label in the noise. <laughs> I mean, kind of those outsider. They may still, maybe. Yeah, I know, like some, like the, especially the one with the rhythm track, it had a, almost like sound poetry uh, quality yeah. to it. But, um, you know, I was wondering if those early adventures in, in home recording with the boo sort of gave you the bug for experimenting or having someone like that that would just go along uh, with your just sh- like the desire to just push the boundaries and have fun with music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it was crucial. It was crucial to have that space to, because I could do anything and it wasn't like, if I was down there by myself doing that, they, they, they wouldn't have flown, you know, mm-hmm. like, what are you doing? You know, but I was just, I'm hanging out with the boo. I mean, I always made up songs and stuff, but I think I think most kids, maybe all kids, do that, mm-hmm. right? They just kind of make like I have nieces and nephews now, and they range in age from like two to five, and they're always singing like weird stuff. Like my nephew Roman, who I've been hanging out with recently the past few days, he's four, you know. And I was just I was at the piano with him, and I just kind of let him lead. And he was writing this song about like a bear that eats candles, you know. I mean, just <laughs> out of no, out of uh, who knows where that comes from. And right. It was just like with the boo, but it's amazing to see what kids come up with. Um, but I think we all lose that, or most of us lose that. Right. And uh, and the recording part was definitely, yeah, it was being able to record with her and figure all that out and reverb and gain on all those little switches. It was definitely like, if I didn't have the bug by then, I, that definitely gave it to me. Because I was basically producing, right? Right, yeah, <laughs> In right, right. Sense, like, yeah, do that part again, but like louder, you know, and, and just that was super fun. Yeah. I never lost that. I mean, as jaded, I mean, I'm, I can be a pretty jaded person, but as jaded as I've been over, you know, I'm 42 years old. I never, I never don't get psyched to record. Mm-hmm. And I never, I, I'm never not psyched when the records come in the mail and I put the needle down and I hear, wow, it's my voice. That's my guitar. Like, so that's still like a huge thrill that definitely started with the karaoke machine, mm-hmm. I think. Right, right. Do you have quite a bit of recordings from that period? I mean, when you were young? Oh, like- yeah. Like there's a whole yeah, I archive. <laughs> that... I have tons. It's just it's a matter of going through it. I wasn't really. I mean, I was a bad archivist in the sense that I didn't really label things. So they're like sterilite bins full of unmarked cassettes, and that's where I drew a lot of the stuff from. So mm-hmm. there's a ton more. I just I don't I don't have the time. I need like interns or something. Yeah. <laughs> like a, right. This one's good, but yeah, I recorded everything and I saved almost everything. I mean, yeah. I, have, I have a storage unit. I've had a storage unit since 2008. Um, that's basically just, you know, records, CDs, tapes and stuff. Yeah. That's all it is. And without that, I could probably move, you know, with a, with a backpack because I don't yeah. really keep anything else, but I keep media and yeah, I, I just, I don't think there's a, there's enough time in a lifetime to go through all the tapes that I made when I was a kid, but you know, I was able to cherry pick some of them for the podcast. I hope to find some more. If I yeah. Find. Yeah. So your storage bin, I mean, do you move that every, because you've moved quite often over the years. Does that yeah, storage bin yeah. move with it's you? Al- Man. It's an albatross for sure. <laughs> it's definitely an albatross. I mean, there have been times where I've lived in a different state than the storage yeah. unit, but that was usually temporary. Like, I just don't want to deal with this now. We'll leave it in Tennessee and I'll just go to Kentucky. And But yeah, it's it's a major, major hassle. And, you know, I'm I'm a big physical media person, but the one concession I'll make to the sort of Spotify and the, you know, the 
the sort of ethereal media people is like, yeah, it's a real pain in the butt moving that stuff around. <laughs> it's crazy. And I, I have maybe one or two more left in me, and I think that's it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be somewhere. honest. That's maybe one of my mental barriers. We have a desire to move, and I keep thinking, yeah. God, I don't want to pack up all those records and CDs. I really don't. Oh, David, it's it's hell. I don't mean to. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to discourage you, but it's it's hell. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolute hell. Yeah. You know, you have to think about how they stack, and you have to think about temperature, and then you know, there's just the the, the moving itself is sort of fifty, sixty pounds a piece, and right. depending on how many you have, it's just a lot. Yeah. I don't mm. know. It, would it be sad if you just say, "I I'm sorry, I can't. Mo- I'm stuck here because my records are here. That's it." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think but, if I was a single man without it, you know, without any sort of uh, relationships or tethers to any people, that w- I'd be okay. That would be a good plan B, you know, <laughs> just like the sort of Burgess Meredith Twilight Zone scenario. Like here I am in my mountain of stuff, <laughs> right. you know, forever. Yeah. Well, I, I guess talking about those recordings, I mean, could there be a future seven-inch single of Seattle Spitters? Oh, hey, sure. <laughs> Definitely, you know. Uh, any any interested labels know where to find me. You that's know. Right. <laughs> I just thought that song was that was so great. Like what? I'm just trying to think where that even came from. Did, did it was yeah, just I have like, no idea. Just like you were talking about with your nephew, just that spontaneous creation and wordplay. Exactly. It is. It is just like that. And again, it's like I think it's it's tempting to say, oh, and. You know, you read it's it's like we've we've all read a lot of music biographies, and it always frustrates me. Like, oh, Keith Richards at a very young age was like into music. It's like, yeah, him and everybody else. It's just, <laughs> it's not like special. It's only special because we're reading about a famous person. But I think we all do that, and I think just the difference is some people just stop doing it out of right. social norms or or because they're they're interested in something else, whatever. But so yeah, I think that's just something. It's easy to say like, well, and obviously I went on to make records, but I might not have done that i might have just been a weird kid that you know grew to be not weird you know yeah yeah well i know that you've worked in record stores over the years and we just talked about it briefly before uh and you address kind of the proverbial record store snob in one of your episodes episodes you you refer to them a little more directly as the music assholes Uh, (laughs) and uh you know as someone who has put in quite a bit of time behind the counter can you disclose at least a few customer pet peeves that have really pushed you to hold back from slipping into that category of the music? Oh, sure. Because it happens. Yeah, I think, yeah, it definitely happens. And I think, I think we all have our bugbears and our our particular things that rankle us. Um, Like one thing that always bugged me, like post Napster, post audio galaxy, whatever post like music everywhere was when like younger kids came in and they knew they knew Loveless, but they didn't know isn't anything. That's a mm-hmm. good example, I mm-hmm. think, because Loveless is this canonical, you know, uh, it's the one you're supposed to know, right? Right, right. Like it's the, it's the My Bloody Valentine album that you you have to know. But they never heard anything else. And you know, the idea of the journey of, of buying like bad or mediocre, or even great <laughs> records that aren't like necessarily the consensus pick, it always bugged me because they would come come in with this authority. Right, like oh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, like Sister and and uh, Daydream Nation, but it's like yeah, but Experimental Jet Set's really good too. Right, it's not as good, but you'll never hear it, and you won't know that story. And I don't know, I, I'm not like a huge Pixies fan, but I do, I do remember that um, my favorite album by the Pixies is Trompe Le Monde, which is like nobody's favorite Pixies album, but 
I had heard so much about the Pixies, and I was, so I was finally went to the mall, and I was like, oh, they have a Pixies album, and that was the one they had. So, like, that's the one I listened to a million times. And, you know, it's, I, I think that's missing from the sort of algorithmic approach to, you know, these, these sort of, like, top 100 albums of 1995. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. But I think overall, though, the kids are not you – know, I don't want to be too hard on the kids because I think it's good to exercise patience with the younger because we, because we were all like that. I remember mm-hmm. I thought I knew everything. You know, right, right. The older, the older snobs are worse. You know, yeah. <laughs> the guys who think they're like they're, they're in on the secret. They're the only ones who listen to Richard Thompson. You know, and you don't know Richard Thompson. It's like, yeah, of course I know Richard Thompson. You know, Dick. <laughs> you know, like the, that's sort of like you know smug. I'm in on something. You're not like that's worse because that because you can't really blame ignorance or or naivete on that. You just those guys are just jerks. You know, right, right. Yep, that and it, it's inevitable that you'll cross paths with those people if you've put in any any yeah. time behind a counter at a record store for sure. Yeah, but um, well, kind of sh- shifting gears, you know, an interview published on Freeform Portland blog from last year, you were asked, you know, what albums in your discography you would recommend to someone to listen to that you know might be unfamiliar with your work, and you listed Blood Oaths of the New Blues as being your favorite Wooden Wand album. There were three records that you listed there, but this was the one that you said is your favorite one. And I was just kind of curious about, like, what was it about that particular album for you? I mean, was it the songwriting? Was it, you know, working with people that you felt pretty good about working with? I mean, what were the circumstances that stand out that make that recording really kind of memorable and what you feel is the strongest work that you've done? Well, I think it's, it's a coincidentally my favorite and that's why I like it the most because it's greater than the sum of its parts. It was the second of three records I made with the same band. Um, it was a band based in Birmingham, Alabama. That's one of my favorite bands I've ever played with, but you know, it started like all the records or a lot of records I make where I just, I make demos and I send them to the band and I feel like my job is mostly done, right? Like, Hey, let's turn this into music that people will want to hear. And then Brad Davis, who's the drummer of that particular band, like the first day we were recording blood oaths, uh, brought a harmonium to the studio and he was just kind of like casually like he always has all these cool toys and devices and synths and mm-hmm. just one day he happened to bring a harmonium and he's like yeah maybe we can use this and then we all started talking like yeah i really love those nico records with the harmonium and then we were all like oh you know those those herman nitz records that are like harmonium those are great. so the more we talked we were like let's really try to incorporate this mm-hmm. and then it became to me like a, a through line like a thread through that whole record and I don't know, it just became really effortless and, and natural, and there's something special about it. I don't think it's my best set of songs, uh, interestingly enough. Um, but it's an album that turned out differently than what I pictured, and I think that's for the better. Yeah. You know, I didn't intend it. You know, there, I did an album after that called Farmer's Corner, and it was one of the only wooden wand albums that I produced. And it turned out exactly the way I pictured it in my head. It was like a mirror image of the demos. But it also didn't do that well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of the, I think it's one of the worst-selling Wooden Wand records. So I, I just think that Blood Oaths record it was just it's something bigger. It's the work of six people, and it captured a moment and a vibe that it'll never never be recaptured yeah. for a number of reasons. And it's but a, it's just a heavy record. And I, I think mean, it's one of the only few that I would listen to for pleasure. Yeah, it's you just stole the words from my mouth. I was going to say, it's it's a pretty heavy record, and not in terms of just like, volume but there's just like an intensity to that record that i think stands out yeah. from some of your other ones for sure 
Well, you you yeah, also going back to what we talked about with you know heavy metal and stuff. Like we we planted backwards messages and stuff, and we were thinking because there's a lot of metal fans in that band too, and we were just thinking like let's get let's try to evoke the feeling we got when we would like drop acid and listen to Merciful Fate. You know, like <laughs> let's try to get that heaviness without like being about guitars, like a heavy and a Nico or like a coil kind of way rather right. than the, you know death metal kind of way. Yeah. Well, you said you didn't think it was your strongest batch of songs. I was wondering because the one of the other records that you mentioned uh, in that particular interview was uh clippership which is really i guess one of the last official full-length wooden wand records is that the the album that you feel like is your strongest batch of songs yeah i mean in the sense that like the latest one's always the the best one you know as far as i'm concerned but yeah that's probably the last one and i think it's a it's a good note to go out on i, I think that record came out really well and yeah i don't know if there'll be another one mm-hmm after that. Well, let's play something from both of them, uh, both of those records in this set. I'm going to start off with one of my favorite songs from that Blood Oaths record. This is a track called Southern Colorado Song. Yeah, we're all now. 
and shoes She sees the world in absolutes With all the wells dry And no sheriff in town You could see how some might give into it now You have to get used to the silence Cause nobody comes around But you can see more from the mountain Than you can on solid ground I went out to replace A fuse that was blown The lights turned on, I was all alone I went out to look For the Kodiak bear I walked back to camp with dry blood in my hair And I saw it all in a movie No one that I knew was there 
shooting Seymour from the mountain than you can on solid air. Shoot those places back into my mind. Separate the space from all this time. Make the pounding pulse of things resign. Crosswalk, I lost a friend. 
flip-flop in the street Kicked off the other and walked the distance in bare feet Overshot to rain and dreadful heat I left this blood for you so you might favor me Next time we meet Sacrificial
Someone who has been a touring musician for you know, goodness a couple decades now, how has yeah. this period of COVID-related lockdowns and restrictions uh, impacted you as a musician? I mean, I know the obvious, of course, is you're not out touring, but I mean, have right. you been able to record? Have you been making music on your own throughout this period? Have you found it difficult to to focus on music, knowing that the payoff of touring is not out there right now? Yeah, it's been it's been difficult for me for sure. I mean, it's I mean obviously like you say there's the tour cancellation, but we were also 111 Heavy, uh, which is my main sort of project these days, my 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 sort of main primary band. We were going to record our third record this summer, and we had kind of a big year lined up, and um, and and then on top of that, like I do like music writing, and a lot of that work obviously dried up too. Mm-hmm. So um, I think keeping busy was 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 a, a way of Staying sane, rather than thinking about results-based work, mm-hmm. it was just about continuing to work and and just sort of waiting this out. So I, before the pandemic, I had I think about eight songs for the 111 Heavy record, which is five too many because <laughs> we have three songwriters, right, so there's yeah. already too many. Um, but I, then I started writing some more, um, and then the podcast idea, had, you know, I was like, well, I'm, I could put my energy into this. At least it's recording. At least it's something to do during the day um and now with the vaccine maybe coming uh we're fingers crossed we're, we're planning to reconvene this summer and make that third record or maybe in the fall and mm-hmm. i'm really excited about that um it's going to be a different very different kind of record and yeah i do see into the podcast but yeah i, I don't know it, it's i think it, maybe you can overstate though how devastating this was for some of us because without getting on a you know, on a soapbox, like streaming has decimated my line of work and the, mm-hmm. the way I've always done stuff. So it's not like we were, 
you know, prospering before this. Mm-hmm. This definitely did not help. Definitely did <laughs> right. not help. Because there was still the network when you could go out and tour, you could still count on certain people to buy the records and help. And there's been a lot of band camp support. But, um, yes, the it, it's just not how it was. So this is just another major blow. I mean, it's definitely a, a major blow, not a it's not a blip, but it wasn't things weren't terrific before. Right. You know? So right. it's just about I mean rock and playing rock and roll in twenty twenty one is sort of like vaudeville, right? Yeah. I mean it's not it's not anything, you know, it's like you we're not under any illusions. We're not gonna we're not gonna get the fourteen year old kids yeah you know, singing along. Well I remember So it's just a matter of just doing what you do and just yeah, yeah, no, I I I think it was in another article that I read, maybe in that same one I referenced earlier. You said how streaming, you know, kind of brought down the, your area of music, and now with what with COVID, it's almost kind of put the death nail to it. To a, and maybe I'm 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 misquoting you, but is that how you no, see it? Right. I mean, right. like, yeah. wh- where are bands like the size that you are, are going to play? You know, where are the venues? It's so many right. of them are going to be dried up when we come out of this. So I mean. I guess that's yeah. that's kind of you know frustrating and daunting, but I hope that you know I, I think people's backyards might be the new venues or people's garage. Sure. I don't know. Hoping there's like creative yeah, ways. Yeah, I, I think there. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a way forward and a way forward that maybe we can learn from a lot of what's happened and um, and get back to more of a community based or locally based thing. But again, like my band's Transatlantic, so for mm. instance, like you know there was all this talk when this first started. Back in what I like to call the sourdough bread making phase of pandemic, <laughs> which seems very quaint. Right. You know, this was before George Floyd and before the election, where it really did just seem like, okay, everybody, let's share recipes. Back yeah. then, there was a lot of talk about live streaming and like, just do your thing. And, you know, our band, I'm in Wisconsin, Dan's in Florida, Hans is in Tennessee, Nick is in Spain, and Jake is in Portland, Oregon. So there's, it's literally like thousands of miles right. between band members. So when everyone's like, just live stream, it's really just not practical or possible. So right. um, well, which it's hard, beg- hard to make lemonade that way. Yeah, <laughs> which I suppose begs the question, you know, it's hard enough getting a band together in your own hometown and maintaining that. <laughs> what the hell are you guys thinking? <laughs> well, I guess I was on tour and I was losing money, but I wasn't losing enough money. And I thought, <laughs> hmm, how can I lose even more money? You know, I know. No, I mean the, the real the real answer is I think just as you get older the pool of people shrinks the pool yeah. of willing adults you know sure I'll go on tour for three weeks and not make much money if any and sleep on floors and you know people have jobs and families and it's really difficult to convince you know people who are qualified who are good players and good writers and good musicians and and who have toured enough to know the etiquette they're not going to you know rifle through host medicine cabinet or run off and disappear for three days and with a drug dealer, you know, like all that stuff is, Mm -hmm. is important. Um, so yeah, it's hard, but I don't know. I think we have a really good group and we all have a lot in common and we all have similar backgrounds and similar histories. So yeah, it's, it's insane though. It's totally (laughs) impractical and I would not recommend it to anyone, but I really do enjoy being in that band. I really love the music we make and I love the people in the band. So it's, as long as we can possibly continue doing it, we will. Right, right. That's great. Well, I, I wanted to discuss the the tagline of your podcast and how, as you call it, your obsession with music gave you a reason to live but also wrecked your life. And I, I wanted yeah. to ask, you know, did going through the process of writing your book 
and and doing this podcast give you a certain new degree of perspective on the path that you pursued in your life? I mean, do you do you see more of the positives having gone through that and just kind of reflecting on all those years that you've devoted to music? Yeah, to some to some degree, it gave me some perspective, um, remembering the stuff, and it, yeah, it helps you take stuff to, to not take stuff for granted, maybe as much. I mean, one thing that always sticks out to me is I remember the first tour I did overseas. This would have been like 2004, maybe, like my first like European you know jaunt. And I remember coming back on the plane. I was counting money, and I had spent eleven dollars of my own money. And at that point, I had seen like five countries. I'd been to Denmark and Sweden and, and Belgium. And I remember thinking, like, wow, like nobody in my family, except maybe my cousin Peter, but that's another story, like could really say right. that, that they were able to see and experience all this stuff and it didn't cost them anything. And that was a really good moment for me. That was a really, and remembering stuff like that, where I, I've been able to experience this stuff because of music. The music was the visa, you know, through which I was able to experience stuff that I never would have otherwise, from, you know, given a person from my background. So that stuff. Yeah, that was that was good to to remember. But on yeah. paper, the, the the wrecked your life part, like on paper, I'm an ex-con. Like yeah. I have the resume of of an ex-con, of yeah. a felon, right? I mean, to a lot of the straight world, that's what I am, right? Mm-hmm. And people define success in weird ways, and obviously, we should all define it for ourselves. But it's hard not to feel feel that sort of thing about just well the things that could have been. But I remember I had a conversation with Thurston more many years ago and it was such a great conversation because he was like i guess he has an uncle who's who's like says things to him like oh well you're still not on the radio you're going to give this up right i mean obviously this is not working out for you time to do something. you know what i mean it's like telling there's some more of that and i was like oh, okay so you got those guys too right like you have those family members too so it's, it's important to keep that sort of thing in perspective um so yeah, I don't know. It's 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 the the reason to live and wreck my life. Those things are equal yeah. in my mind. Yeah. I mean, it has given me a reason to live, but it's it's also made me unemployable for the most part. Yeah. And it's too late to start anything new, but it's too early to retire. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, you <laughs> so, know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that a little bit because you you know you go sure. through your laundry list of jobs that you have, and you said you're not really qualified for anything. But I think perhaps you've found the thing that you're qualified for and that is being a podcaster. I mean, you've got the, the <laughs> maybe, you've maybe got the so. writing skills, the research skills, the, the knowledge of music and understanding of production. Um, oh, I think you've, you've got the complete package, James. You could, uh, we just need to bring in, you know, anybody out there listening, uh, let's launch this, the Toth zone. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, no, yeah, maybe you're onto something. I, yeah. So it's definitely a, it's definitely sort of like nexus point of all of my interests in, in some ways. So I mm-hmm. guess that's, that's that's definitely fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, let's talk about just a few things that you were mentioning. You know, for the Toth Zone for a second season, you said you're thinking about doing it. You're leaning towards that, but it might look a little bit different. And I know on the last episode you talked about a few different possibilities. Any of those? Well, first, maybe we should just say what are some of the things you're thinking about, and do any of those seem more appealing than just continuing on with sort of your childhood exploits, for lack of a better term? Yeah. Well, I sort of crowdsourced this on on Patreon and with you know with a few friends, and the overwhelming sort of consensus seems to be that it should be a no format format. Mm-hmm. 
um, in the sense that, like, so some of the episodes will will resemble season one, where I'll tell this story about, you know, Wooden Wand and Vanishing Voice on the road, one of these crazy trips. And then some other time I'll maybe have a friend on um, to discuss, you know, maybe someone, another songwriter or another band member discussing their similar stories. And then maybe I'll just talk about a genre or a record label I really like or... Um, so yeah, maybe just a mixed bag and it'll take the pressure off me to, to make it chronological. And it'll also make it so that if you miss an episode, you know, you're not scrambling to, to, to catch up, right? right? You can just kind of, just kind of dip in, dip out, however you feel like, oh, I'm not interested in ECM and this whole episode's about James's favorite ECM. You know what I mean? So, right, so I, right. I think that may be the best way to go about it. And that's probably the most encouraging option because it makes it a lot easier for me just to kind of follow the whatever my inspiration is that particular week or that month. Right. And I was just, gonna, yeah, that kind of lends itself to what you're describing with your own music interests that it allows you to do something and move on to the next thing and keep it fresh and exciting for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, in the end, it could just be a Grateful Dead podcast too. Well, there's plenty of those and there's <laughs> plenty of good ones. Um, <laughs> if anything, I'd want to make it more specialized and make it like a Keith and Donna podcast. <laughs> You know, I feel like yeah. that's there's a story there that needs to be told, and somebody needs to write that book or make that podcast. There you go. So, so I was going to do it. Yeah, there are, there are plenty of uh, possibilities here, but yeah. well, I, I thought uh, we'll we'll wrap things up here and head into some of your newer projects and collaborations. Starting off with the one one eleven heavy, as you mentioned from your last album, Desire Path. But I thought I would just ask you. You know, you mentioned some of the things for one eleven heavy that you, you know, plans in the future that you have in the works. Anything else? I mean, I thought I had read that you were working with John Mueller, who's up in your neck of the woods in Wisconsin. Is that accurate? Yeah, John's a friend of mine. And uh, we've done some informal collaborations that were really fun um, with a saxophonist named Nick Shadow and uh, my good friend uh, Eric Kowalski, who maybe some of your listeners know as Casino versus Japan. Mm-hmm. Um so despite Green Bay's small population and, like, dearth of a scene, uh, there are people here to play with. And we haven't really done anything that's, like, official, but we've definitely been getting together. Uh, there's a place here called the Luna Cafe that's a, an oasis. Mm-hmm. And they host everything from American primitive guitar players to, like, free jazz legends. Like, Ken Vandermark played there. Brotsman's played there, which is kind of amazing given that there's only 100,000 people in Green Bay. And we've we've right. done a little some things there. Nothing official, but... I love collaborating. That's what's one of my favorite things to do. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you have any interest? I don't. I don't want to talk about like will wooden wand resurface, but do you have any desire to continue to make music, kind of in a solo vein or in a songwriter vein like that? Yeah, I could see doing that, but not under that name. Mm-hmm. And I don't have anything really planned uh, for that. I mean, like there's there are always new songs. There are always the songs don't stop, but I just didn't want to saturate. I mean, I've already saturated the market since, you know, 96 or whatever. So I just feel like the world doesn't really need more wooden wand records mm-hmm. and let everybody catch up. And, you know, it just, I don't want it to be about vanity. Right. Uh, and sometimes releasing a record just feels like vanity, mm-hmm. uh, especially nowadays with everything that's going on in the world. And it's just, oh, your record's great. Here's my record. Oh, cool. Check out my record. Mm-hmm. I like yours. It's just, it's just not really, it's just not really appealing to me. So, I think just to put stuff out when it seems right and when it seems like there's a reason for it to exist in the world. And then there's Bandcamp for everything else, you know, for right, for right. diehards and people who really want to hear archive stuff. I'm happy to 
provide that stuff. And I think sometimes that's the best stuff. It's first yeah. thought, best thought. Yeah. So that, that'll always exist. And that's a great, that's a great format and a great um, sort of place to, to, to put that stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. I should mention that, you know, in the previous set of music, we played something from that Brooklyn blizzard released, which were kind of, the, those were the last wooden wand recordings. And to me, yeah. man, those are just incredible, like incredible oh, recordings. Thanks, David. Yeah. I mean, like what a great sound, uh, it sounded a little different, and of course you had the guys from Woods as your backing band. But it'd be yeah. one that that is something that should see the light of day on some physical format, just because yes, people like us need the tangible. I guess. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. I, I, that, there was a really good response to that, and I think if, if anything was to come out on a physical format, it'll be that. I just would like to finish it because the idea yeah. was that Jarvis and I, and I should mention that Jarvis should get most of the credit mm-hmm. for the way that record sounds. I mean, he's, uh, we're old friends, and I just knew that he would do the right thing, and it just sounds so good. Um, but yeah, I'd like the idea was to do half of it and then come back and finish it, and for whatever reason, we just never really reconvened to finish it. So hopefully we mm-hmm. could do that, because I, I like those songs too, and I really love what Jarvis and Jeremy and those guys mm-hmm. did with it. So. Yeah, that, that's, that would make sense as far as like wrapping up Wood and Wand with those recordings. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, James, thanks so much for your time. This has been great talking to you. Oh, thank you, David. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So we'll head into this next block of music here. This is 111 Heavy with a track called Wild Hair. It was
you seen the man? Yes. Tell me about the last time. He rode a horse into the pool hall, selected a splintered, crooked cue, and he made a trick shot without dismounting. Wow. Yeah. The coolest thing I'd ever seen. loved you all my days I have loved you all my days Let me look into your crying eyes Tell you all the things I know you know Before I go now I have loved just you alone Everything we know begins to die Know that I have never told you lies I don't know how
And that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I want to thank James once again for taking the time to speak with me this week. If you'd like to check the complete playlist for this show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played and where you can purchase a copy if you'd like. I'd also encourage you to check out the first season of The Toth Zone if you haven't already, which is available through all the usual podcast outlets. I'm guessing many of you can relate to the stories that James shares in the first season. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout.hotmail.com. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode. Until then, thanks so much for listening.